It's December 20th, 2021. This is Rook. When it comes to Persian music inside and outside of Iran, there's a great deal to celebrate. Legendary songs and melodies, brilliant artists, interesting cross-cultural innovators. But it's also no secret that the Iranian music business is fundamentally broken. From the effects of an Islamic revolution that banned music of almost all kinds, to a culture that sometimes devalues the status of arts itself as a career, Iranian music has been left dysfunctional and bereft of the international success and exposure that it would deserve. Today we begin a new series to ask why. The plight of Persian music with our inaugural guest musician and producer Babak Khiafchi. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode 160 of Rook. Nice to be talking to you. Hope you're keeping well. Wherever you're tuning in from around the world, hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Salam. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Khoshomadin. Durbashama. Hello, Groovy Shaya. Hi, Drood. Hello, Durud. Hello, the fabulous Keon. Hi, Gian. Welcome back. Thank you. I would say you've got a fabulous tan, but you always seem to have a tan. Uh, do I? Do you have more of a tan now? I've changed races since you've seen me last time. <laughs> okay. Okay, is that too much? I don't know. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that, I suppose. I, uh, as long as you love all races. I do, of course, okay, yeah. but I changed five shades. So. Uh, Keon is here. Shia is here. We're still down a, a man. Uh, sending a love out to uh, Captain Reza, who's still down with COVID, mm. but improving, I'm told. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he's, uh, hopefully he's doing all right. He says he's doing okay. Yeah, now. he's not dying. I leave sure. one week and the whole ship starts to sink. That's <laughs> right. Reza That's gets right. COVID. We'll talk more about this later in the show, your trip to Antigua, uh, where you had an amazing time and got a tan, and uh, Captain Reza being sick and almost dying at the same time. I hope you've... Feel good about yourself, Keon. Feel shameful. <laughs> Listen, we often talk about uh, music on this show, and specifically Persian music, and specifically the the Persian music industry and the dysfunction of it. And it makes sense that we talk about Persian music because it is one of those ties that binds uh, all of us people of Iranian background. There's either through nostalgia or excitement about new artists. There's this, it's the, one of the few things, in fact, uh, along with, say, Persian cuisine that um, that unites us in, yes. in, in many ways. Uh, a gugush song can bring us all together exactly. for the most part. Uh, and, and, and so it's a very po- important part of our culture, and so it makes sense that that's something that, that we talk about in a program like this. And and also, given who we are on the Rook team, I spent you know 10 years of my life touring as a professional musician. Shia, you're a yes. stellar musician. Members of our Rook team are musicians, yes. Savvy, Roham, etc. So this is always something that we're interested in. So when it comes to Persian music, even when we are celebrating 
a legendary artist or a brilliant Iranian song or a fabulous new discovery in the diaspora. There's always an asterisk. You know, there's always a, a caveat. There's always a, a hint of sadness because of the state of things. And, and that is quite simply that the Persian music business and Persian musical artists continue to suffer the effects of a literal ban mm-hmm. on Persian music when the Islamic Republic took hold after the 1979 revolution. Uh, the implications of this ban not only retarded the growth of what would what had become a burgeoning young industry in Iran, as we've discussed, but continues to have adverse effects on musicians and recording artists in the diaspora when it comes to anything from royalties to representation to innovation and to reaching a core audience of millions inside Iran that still cannot hear popular music on the radio, yes, right? Yeah. Uh, cannot attend a hip-hop concert, uh, cannot form a band with a female lead singer. No. I mean, uh, it's for those outside of Iran um, and those who, certainly the non-Iranians or those who grew up very westernized, you know, these things that have become commonplace for the average Iranian, knowing that, you know, you can't have a girl lead singer or something like that, are, are still shocking and, and are still deeply saddening. But all of that is not an excuse alone for the way things have to be either. There, there are ways that Persian music remains dysfunctional beyond that oversized shadow of the revolution and censorship. Sometimes it's about the ingrained behavior um, on the part of Iranians and even Iranian artists that perpetuates a system that has, with very notable exceptions, of course, left Iranian music moribund, right? Yes. So, so we're starting a series called The Plight of Persian Music. And uh, today is the first episode featuring, uh, uh, or first part of it, I suppose, uh, featuring a guy named Babak Khiafchi. Yes. Uh, Babak definitely knows his stuff. You know Babak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very happy that we we are going to start this series with Babak. He's amazing. He's, I mean, uh, for me, he's a definition of like a good person who knows he, a good person good yeah wow, he, you're, you're gonna go that far uh, uh, yes yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a good person yeah he's one of the most honest people that i have <sighs> seen yeah in my life he's amazing he's amazing well he he's also come at this from different angles right mm-hmm. because he was in iran and then he was in the diaspora uh we're going to talk to him in a, few, a few minutes from he's in seattle yeah. he um he's kind of an uh, he's a musician himself, yes, uh, notably so. Uh, well, I'm gonna, I've got to ask him about playing that concert with Gugush. Um, he's a producer, but he also, he's been dealing with these issues for years. He tried to start an independent label, or he did start an independent label for a while. Yes, uh, he, uh, he's been writing about this stuff. He's been doing this clubhouse series, uh, talking about Persian music and the history of it. Uh, he, he knows his stuff. Uh, yes, and uh, as you said, he knows like on stage, backstage, promoting side, like everything. Yeah, yeah publishing yeah. side, and yeah. I mean, we want to continue this thing. Next week, we're gonna, we're gonna have a guy named Amir Bahari, who uh, oh, he's, he's a, a genius in this in this area as yes. well. Uh, and he's more recently been living in Iran, so he gives us that perspective inside. But today, Babak Khiafchi. Uh, and you know, it, it, this isn't when we talk about the revolution and the regime. It, it isn't just ancient history. There is, I mean, we're doing this episode this past week. Uh-huh. I'm told in the Majlis in the Iranian Parliament, there was a, I guess, a parliamentarian yeah, that got up and said, 
if you want to import music, play music, or wear sunglasses, leave the country. Yes, yes, we don't need music. This is a true story. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, what, did, what did he say? Do you, do you know what? Yeah, something like we don't need music in this country. If you want music, leave. I mean, yeah. Imagine. Imagine a like a seven-year-old kid hearing this and like you know having to decide whether do I trust my government or am I going to be cynical for the rest of my life about it? I mean, it's just a, what a mess. Sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sunglasses. I, somebody in the rook team told me about this. I was like, what? Why? <laughs> why can we not wear sunglasses? <laughs> like I thought, like Don Ahuns wear sunglasses too. <laughs> like, what if it's sunny? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I can't Do, well, it. why is sunglasses included? It's just uh, like Western or I something. Mean, it reminds me like hundred years ago when the glasses actually they were kind of imported to Iran. Mm. Uh. Some Ahuns actually they banned wearing glasses, glasses? because because it they they uh, thought they they brought from the West. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Oh my so, God. Yeah, yeah there was some element to this which was about not importing. Oh, music the, and the things. music musical instrument always they're considered as a luxury uh-huh. uh, equipment so because of that it's very expensive in Iran the music right. instrument yes yeah, so yep. all right well there you go that's enough um, fodder to, to <laughs> legitimize to this uh, incentive for this series we're starting hey we are coming to you on rookmedia.com it is there that you can link to all of our platforms we're on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. We're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Castbox. If you like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to YouTube right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. There, all of those handles are at Rook Media, uh, and you can become a patron of this show or a sponsor by going to our website, rookmedia.com, and contacting us from there. Um, you've missed a lot, Keon. You were away for a little bit. We got a, yes. a bunch of mail. Yes, we did. Uh, a lot of interesting mail this Is that right? today. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> I can't wait to read them, actually. All They're right. quite funny, some of them. We're going to get to the letters of the week. We've also had a lot of response to our um, our uh, Contemporary History of Iran series, uh, um, part one of the episodes dealing with uh, Reza Shah, which mm-hmm. we uh, began last Thursday. Uh, all of that you can find at rookmedia.com. We will get to the letters. Uh, we'll get to Groovy Shia. Uh, do you have some music you're going to play after this, by the way? I, don't tell me what it is. Did you pick okay. some? I picked some, and I think actually maybe there's a chance that you will talk about the, by the Okay, okay. I, I, I won't release anything. Okay, yet. okay. So you think it's something that Bobak's going to talk I about? I think so, yes. All right, all right, we'll get to that as well. All right, Keon, uh, Shia, stick around. Reza, what? Do you say that? Marhum Reza. No, what do you say? I don't. Zabunet the We have often talked about Persian music. It's peaks, valleys, and one-dimensional nature on a popular level on this program. But we wanted to start a series to take the opportunity for a deeper dive into an industry and creative class that has struggles in myriad ways. You might call it the plight of Persian music in recent decades. Specifically, what is the state of popular Persian music today, including, say, rock, 
rap or alternative pop? How did a burgeoning music business in Iran implode after the revolution? And was it ever all that it was promised to be? And in the years since, why is the Persian music industry outside of Iran so dysfunctional, as we've often discussed? And what are the roots of why Persian rock and alternative music, if not Persian pop itself, has not had a greater global impact in the last half century? Well, our inaugural guest for this series may be a software engineer by profession, but he is a music nerd, a music industry veteran, a rock guitarist and a producer, and a guy who has consistently made no secret of his passion for building Persian contemporary music. Babak Khiafchi was born in Tehran, spent most of his childhood in the UK and the US, and then returned to Iran with his family after the 1979 revolution. In his teenage years, Babak discovered hard rock and metal music as an emotional outlet and started learning to play the guitar. By the 1990s, he was teaching rock guitar in Tehran and collaborating with multiple music groups in the emerging Iranian underground music scene. In 1999, Bobak immigrated to America, and in July 2000, only 10 days before the start of the tour, got a call to join the Gugush Band in her comeback tour. Bobak did the tour, including that memorable night of the very first Gugush concert after 21 years that took place at Toronto's Air Canada Centre with an audience of over 12,000. Bobak thereafter decided to create an independent record label for Iranian underground musicians, Bamohang Productions, and started writing music reviews and creating alternative music programs for Persian media to introduce new artists. He was also instrumental in the success of the Persian indie rock band Kiosk, of which he was a member for a few years. Babak ended the record label in 2010 and began focusing on concert productions and supporting artists with obtaining performance visas and providing career advice. Most recently, Babak has been hosting weekly music-related programs in Persian on Clubhouse. But right now, Babak Khiafchi joins us from Seattle, Washington today. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian John. I'm really happy to be on your program. I've been a long-time listener of you and uh, I just wanted to come over and say hi for, um, you know, interviewing all my guitar idols and some of the musicians that have really had an impact on my life. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for coming on the show. And, uh, and this is a very particular topic that I think you're really suited for. I hope you don't uh, take it offensively that I called you a music nerd, but rather uh, as a badge of honor. That was a perfect description. <laughs> okay. Well, I wanted to give you a long and proper introduction, Babak, to set you up for this chat and explain your credentials, because this conversation, as you and I have discussed before we started taping, is, is going to be less about your personal story and more about what you can tell us and teach me about the contemporary state of Persian rock and alternative music. Good? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Okay. Absolutely. So let me start with the start and, and go back to the era before the 79 revolution. I mean, we, we have an idea that music and a music industry was starting to grow in Iran before the 1979 revolution. We don't have the time, of course, to get into a comprehensive history of Iranian popular music through the 20th century, but in the rock and metal and alternative rock realms, what was happening before the revolution? Before the revolution, there was a lot of experimentation going on, a lot of uh, fusion and, uh, you know, different styles. 
blending with Iranian folk music and rock music. We had some great uh, musicians and cover bands like Black Cats, The Rebels, Scorpio, Zangulaha, Ojubaha. Most of these were cover bands. They didn't have original material. The ones that did have original uh, material like Kurosh Yahmai, Farhad, Faramaz Aslani, these are the ones that have still remained on our you know, classic Persian rock playlist, and we still listen to them to this day. So these are the ones that have stood the test of time and, and created some really memorable hits in uh, the Persian music rock scene, I guess. There's this sense that, I mean, and certainly it's borne out by the experience of Farmaz Aslani, who uh, is part of CBS Records and releases an album, uh, a very innovative, you know, at the time, a kind of uh, not a cover record, a, a, an original record in 1977-78. There's this sense that Iran was on the precipice of a really... Uh, breakthrough uh, when it comes to developing a Persian uh, music industry. Is it fair to say things were thriving or is that an overstatement, do you think? I think the the art and music scene was really doing well uh, the decade before the revolution. We also had the annual Shiraz Arts Festival and that took place for over 10 years. And uh, that festival brought a variety of worldwide talent into Iran which greatly influenced Iranian artists from jazz musicians, from classical musicians. So when you have this international cultural exchange, you begin to raise the standards of the local music industry. And I think that had a really good effect. And I think the golden years of the Persian pop music scene was the decade before the revolution. Those are when we have all these timeless hits created. Sure, and the big names that still flourish in, in Persian music are all from that era, right? They're all from that moment, yeah, basically. Exactly, exactly, yeah. By the way, the Shiraz Festival of Arts gets mentioned a lot. Uh, we, we actually did a full episode on the contemporary history of Iran on the Shiraz Festival just a, a few weeks ago. It's fascinating. It's always so interesting that this revolutionary, innovative festival took place not in Tehran, but in Shiraz, right? Well, Shiraz has always been known as a uh, hub for art. You know, we have um, we have Hafez there. We have uh, all these. So I mean, Shirazi people are known as being very uh, emotional and sensitive and art loving. And it's just such a beautiful place. All these wonderful gardens and the architecture. And you can just go on and on about it. So there was this... Um, international exchange between Iranian and uh, Western musicians and artists. And at the same time, we were able to showcase Iranian traditional music on the stage and, you know, expose it to international artists who were visiting. So that, I think, also helped uh, us both ways. It seems like a given that the Islamic Revolution, uh, at least after the first year where things were kind of open in that one-year window, uh, into the early 1980s, that the revolution basically devastates the Persian rock and alternative music scene. Uh, tell me what you've learned about that time. I mean, is it as simple as that? Yeah, I mean, after the revolution, the academic music schools like Honarestan and Musiqiyam Meli, they were basically shut down for many, many years. And once they were reopened, they were only focusing on patriotic songs, Surudhaye Engalabi. 
and those were mostly used for state propaganda during the the war and it was only in 1988 where the uh, trade and usage of mu musical instruments became legal and they, it became legal through a fatwa by Ayatollah Khomeini which included uh, playing chess and eating caviar so when you put all of these things together <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> what the state of Iran was in 1988 you have all three of these suddenly becoming legal and people were just overjoyed that wow this is a this is a huge change things are going to be really better after this but uh, you know the music industry didn't change that much what happened because of the musical instruments that were easier to access and sell we had a lot of bands performing uh, cover songs in the underground music scene and there were all these different hubs uh, developing all over Tehran and all over Iran. But that's and later, right? That's into the 1990s? That's in, uh, yeah, I, w I would say early 90s, yeah. So uh, just take me back for a second. I, I mean, and let me just get a little granular here. For those of us who weren't there, uh, either because we didn't live in Iran or who were too young or whatever. Like, say you were one of these musicians who was playing rock music in, you know, 1978. Um, literally, what happens to your rock guitar and your amp, you know, after night? Like, do, do you just, like, hide it somewhere in the basement and, and never play it? Or, I mean, what, what happened to what had existed before that time? Uh, to my knowledge, uh, a lot of it went underground. Um, you know, music instruments, you were really lucky if, uh, you know, the comité would c catch you and then if they didn't break your instrument because they were really sensitive about anything symbolizing Western culture uh, during the first decade of the revolution. So a lot of the, the these musicians either became silent or they, uh, you know, immigrated to um, other countries. Wow. Um, we hear about that underground scene that you were just beginning to talk about developing by the early 1990s. You were part of that, in fact, along with folks like Arash Mitui. Uh, so the 1980s are pretty much a write-off for Persian music, I mean, at least in Iran? Yeah, 1980s was uh, mostly Surud, Surud Hayangalabi. <laughs> Tell me about the group Khoda. Uh, Khoda, well, um, are you referring to Arash Mitui's album, Khoda? Oh, sorry, was that an album? I thought it was the name of the group. <laughs> you, you, you were playing with him. I thought the, the, the band was called Khoda. Was a record called Khoda? Yeah, the album was called Khoda. Yeah, that was one of his uh, first um, underground rock album really official releases. And, you know, I mean, it's not a big release. You're just, you have a small group of people who just take your um, tape and copy it and distribute it between themselves and give you good feedback. That was the uh, release. But the, I guess, creativity of Arash Mitui in Khoda was that he was blending blues and jazz and rock and traditional Persian daska into his music and using uh, some of uh, poetry from his father and uh, some other Sherino. Um, lyrics and it's just uh, an amazing album it's just so full of emotion it if you listen to it now it's really overproduced because um we didn't have a lot of good equipment back then i think it was just a four track that he used to develop and record all these um 
you know, tracks, but it's just a great experimentation at that time. And this was in 1991. You know, the, the word underground music, like it gets used a lot. It gets used in the West for to describe a, a genre of music, right? Like it's underground music scene. But in Iran in the 1990s, I mean, it was literally an underground music scene. Exactly. Uh, and, and I wonder if you can describe the ecosystem for somebody like me who wasn't there, uh, who was playing music in Canada at the time and would have no sense of this because I know that I mean I can watch the Batman Robadi the great film from uh, who knows about Persian cats that that's from 2009 and there's sort of an underground music scene at that point that we're watching but it just means you go behind closed doors and you you know but it's it's kind of thriving uh, by that point in the 1990s I've got to imagine that there's a real danger of being found out of being discovered and yet you're developing in the basements or in the, the, the you know the undergrounds of, of houses or, uh, or, or or buildings this scene where young people can hear music and and trade tapes and uh, describe that ecosystem for me yeah when we talk about uh, basements and underground music it was literally underground we would go into our friends' basements and storage spaces and clean out rugs and old cabinets and dead cats and just make it a livable place so we could just spend hours and hours there. Because the main problem was having a soundproof environment that wouldn't uh, bother the neighbors who would, you know, call the police or somebody and then we would have all our equipment confiscated. So it was very... Uh, carefully scheduled who would uh, you know be coming and going and how we would control the uh, hours of rehearsal so as not to bother any of the neighbors but it was just a like a time machine for us when you stepped into that environment you would just forget about all the other issues you had outside in the real world like you know uh, school and concour and university and military service and the economy it was just the way to uh, relax it was total escapism for us and something that we started discovering different styles of music and and sharing information between ourselves and finding about uh, the magic formulas that would make a chord work on a certain scale and would just give you those constant goosebumps what about these little concerts that you would do in the undergrounds like how do you get the word out in a furtive way without the authorities knowing and how do you gather 200 young people to uh come for a concert in the underground without the neighbors or or the the authorities finding out well i i personally never had played in front of a 200 audience it was usually just 30 or 40 people maximum even 30 and or 40 how do they how do they even find out about it just just phone calls you know we didn't have any mobile phones back then or any social media or internet it was just word of mouth and uh, just within your trusted uh, circle of friends who would uh, enjoy the kind of music you were trying to uh, perform in that really small and cramped space and what happens if you get busted uh you don't want to know <laughs> they take you to uh you know these uh comite they used to call them back then and you have to fill out all sorts of different forms and describe uh the offense that you've been 
accused of and pay fines and your equipment would get confiscated or broken in front of you and it's just a really traumatic experience for a musician. I know this happened quite a bit. I, re- I read an interview with you from a few years ago where you were talking about an underground little concert that had happened somewhere in Karaj, uh, and that there was a couple hundred people there, and basically everybody got arrested, everybody got detained, everybody got had to serve time for just attending this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened a lot, yeah. This is kind of a strange way of coming at this, but let me try it out on you. We often talk about how interesting art can emerge from repressive societies, you know, Uh, whether it's the Soviet Union uh, in the uh, 30s or 40s or whether it's uh, um, um, monarchist states that tend to be very repressive. Did the restrictions in Iran, uh, and I suppose do the restrictions in Iran, actually help to foster an underground music scene of any um, note? I think it did, and I think it affected the quality of the music that we were listening to and trying to perform. When you have all these different filters that the music has to pass through until it reaches your hand, uh, you only spend your time and energy on the best types of music that you can get. We had uh, travelers from outside of Iran visiting. We would always ask them to bring us CDs of so-and-so, and we would give them a, a complete list of the artists that we would want to listen to. So we really didn't spend much time on um, like cheap pop music back then, at least in my circle of friends. We were focused on good musicians, good guitar players, and trying to emulate that sound and learn from them. And even we had the the circle of really enthusiastic jazz listeners, and we would just spend hours and hours listening to jazz albums and debating, uh, analyzing the songs with each other. And that's something that I really miss because I've never had anything like that in uh after i've immigrated to the u.s until recently where we have a clubhouse where we can just talk endlessly about music but there is there's something there's an energy that comes from doing something that you know is subversive or taboo that you couldn't necessarily feel if you're doing it in toronto or new york that's true that is true yes because uh the that sense of discovering some magical formulas together that you know would uh, probably cause you some uh, problems uh, if the authorities found out. Yes, that is very exciting. So at the same time as rock music had pretty much died, or I should say any kind of popular music for the, for the most part uh, had pretty much died in Iran, a Persian music scene is developing in L.A., in the States, in Los Angeles, in the 1980s, and then into the 1990s. But it is dominated by this very generic and homogenous pop sound, with some notable exceptions and outstanding artists, of course, but overall, this generic sound. How how did that happen? Um, my understanding, my take on this is that, uh, well, you, you know, you, after the revolution, the majority of these... Uh, a-list Persian singers, they had to leave Iran and they all somehow landed in Los Angeles. 
And the majority of them, they were doing really well inside of Iran before the revolution. They were uh, sponsored by government organizations. They had uh, royal commissions. They would uh, perform in festivals. So they really didn't have any other skills or professions other than music to support themselves. So once they came to L.A., that was the only thing they could do to make ends meet. And uh, there was a small... Uh, community of Iranians there and usually I mean they would hire them for either weddings or uh, birthdays and the the type of music they would expect is to um, hear danceable and upbeat music you don't mm. want to go to an Iranian gathering and sit and uh, you know talk about philosophy and real and deeper you know so well i i, I do but i guess <laughs> maybe <laughs> most people don't i suppose well maybe not in the 80s they didn't right really do right, that. right so yeah like you said uh, everything became uh, danceable and uh, six eight grooves and less serious songwriting just some light entertaining music as an escape from the, the harsh reality of immigration Right. Bobak, what can you tell us about something called Caltex? Yeah, Caltex was an interesting um, thing. I uh, did some research about it. Caltex trading actually was established in uh, 1980. It was a uh, food and Persian specialties distribution company. So, you know, they would distribute uh, Persian stuff to Persian groceries, like, you know, all the baqalis and everything. And uh, once we had this whole community of Iranian musicians established in, in, in L.A., uh, they created Caltex Records and used the, the food distribution network to distribute Persian pop music to the Baqalis. And that became the infrastructure of our Persian music industry. Wow. And to, to this day, it's still, like if you want to get, Persian CDs, you don't go to, um, you know, like a, a bookstore or even when, when even when we had Tower Records and Barnes and Nobles and everything, you would still go to a Persian Bakali to get the CDs or, or even concert tickets. And when you have this kind of an infrastructure in place, it makes it impossible to track the number of record sales or CD sales. And uh, there's never been a reliable, um, I would say, data aggregator like we have in Billboard magazine that would consistently report the, the top best-selling uh, artists in Persian music. Right. And if we could use it as a reliable reference point. And Caltex Records, at some point in the 90s, they represented 75% of all Persian music productions. Wow. I still don't totally understand why there is there was and I, and to a certain extent there still is this homogeneity in in the, the you know this LA sound that develops in the 80s and 90s i mean if we if we just take the conversation we've had so far so there's this increasingly thriving diverse interesting music scene that's growing in iran up until 1979 1980 a lot of that gets transplanted around the world and in particular to california but then it all filters into this one kind of upbeat 6-8 thing 
why is that? I mean, why, if you think about, you know, Guns N' Roses, for, for example, emerging from the Los Angeles streets and their sound in the mid-80s, why wasn't something like that coming out of the Iranian community? I think it was, but it wasn't as prominent and it wasn't, um, you know, well-selling. So the producers would tend to focus on upbeat music. And keep in mind that the, the Iran-Iraq war was happening. So you had that harsh experience inside of Iran. So people would still prefer to hear upbeat and light entertaining music. And then you had all these immigrants on the other side of the world. And um, I think that that's my theory, that uh, people were just looking for a way to escape the harsh reality of uh, being Iranian immigrants. You were here by that point, by the by the early two thousands. Uh, was there a subversive under here, meaning the West? Was there a subversive underground scene that was growing uh, amongst Iranians in the West? That was a response to the LA sound. Not that I know of. If it was, it wasn't getting good exposure. I mean, this is all before the uh, internet and social media happened. How did the internet help the underground scene in Iran and help the Iranian music scene outside of Iran? Yeah, so I think uh, access to the internet really was a revolution for Iranian underground music. One of the first albums that came out and represented the uh, Iranian underground rock sound and showed that how creative uh, Iranians can be with the minimum am amount of equipment under restrictions, like you mentioned, was uh, an album by the band Oham, and uh, it was called Nahal Heyrat. And this was all developed in a home studio, Shahram Sharbov. He created this, and it was rock music with Hafez lyrics, and it was just mind-blowing that uh, the the quality of production and the musicianship and the the beats, it was just an amazing and fresh sound, and there was so much passion in this album. It's still, uh, it still gives me goosebumps anytime I listen to it. And then the, the Sharam also created this website for Oham and started sharing links to different music groups and different um, uh, files on the internet. And that I think that was probably the first hub for Iranian underground music. And this was way before social media. So that was a good start to this um, trend. In terms of what you were allowed to play and or record in Iran by the late 1990s and the early 2000s with the emergence of the internet as well, uh, you know, I mean, I've said this many times on this program, and sure I'll say it forever, but it's so hard for me to understand the uh, <laughs> the the inconsistent, weird, uh, hypocritical, sometimes just confounding decisions around what the state decides in Iran is okay art and what is not okay. Right? I I, I can't get my head around it. Um, something I'll hear something that I think is entirely benign and uh, be told that this was totally banned and then I'll hear something that I think will I assume that would be banned and it isn't so I've mentioned this a couple of times on the program but but back to say 2003 
I interviewed a band called Ariane Band, who were uh, a kind of mixed gender pop rock group from Iran at the time that they were considered kind of like uh, on the cutting edge because there were women in the group. Uh, the songs were friendly pop rock songs, but uh, we did the interview in Toronto. There were sort of people from the culture ministry around with folded arms looking at me while I did the interview. But, but how was music like that, presumably because they were allowed the tour and record, et cetera, okay in the eyes of the state, but something else wouldn't be? Um, so there's this thing called the Ershad that uh, regulates all the art and uh, music inside of Iran. And in order to get a permission to record or perform a certain piece of music, you would have to get permission for the music itself and the, also the lyrics and the combination of the lyrics and the music. And the people who would be supervising and had the authority to sign off on these were very rarely artists or musicians. Right, of course. They were just... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's where all these problems came from. They just uh, had a gut feeling that maybe this would sound too, uh, I would say, Western or it wouldn't be... It wouldn't follow religious laws and they would not give it permission. And uh, Ariane had, um, I think, th their manager at that point uh, was very well connected with uh, Ershad and the government. And uh, I could be wrong, but I think once you can prove that there is a uh, financial justification of doing such stuff and you can create some income, then a lot of the regulations tend to uh, start easing away. So I'm a, I, you know, I'd be a touring musician in the 1990s, all through the 90s, uh, in North America and well, and in Europe, and and that, you know, our biggest concern was trying to get along with each other or write songs that we thought were interesting to, uh, you know, our fellow bandmates. If you're in Iran as you were a, a rock musician, say 1998, before you come here, is it basically a decision then in terms of the music you're making? Am I going to make music that I think the Airshad will think is okay, uh, and then I'm going to go into that direction, and or am I going to do stuff that I know is not going to be okay? Is that what you're? Is that what's happening in your mind as you're creating music? Yeah. Um, well, here's what I've learned: that uh, Iranian artists are very creative at finding loopholes in regulations, and uh, the way they did this was uh, they would managed to perform rock music without the lyrics because uh, they could easily get permission for instrumental music and we would go to a, um, see a lot of um, good music rock and fusion bands there was a uh, performing at that point there was there were a lot of bands on stage once you once you eliminate the music then you can pretty much play every, anything you like right so that's how they got their, you know, uh, they managed to get that stage and live experience, which is really crucial for a performing musician to perform in front of a crowd. You have to. Oh, I see. Once you get sanctioned, once you're, I mean, once you have, once you're okay uh, for one piece of music or something, you have, uh, you, you have more latitude. You know, they they check you less for the future recordings. Or? Yeah, yeah. Then uh -huh. you then you develop this, uh, you know, resume. 
and you say, okay, well, we performed music, we generated income, here's your share, and we can do this again. They don't care if it's the if the music is heavy metal or thrash metal or whatever. They they're mostly concerned about the lyrics. Uh huh. But I still don't get. You know, I remember when we had Bob Akamini on the show last year, and we were talking about those first two records that he made while he was still in Iran, and one of them gets banned or is the, he's not allowed to play the songs, and and then you listen to the record, it's like a fucking guitar soft, you know, soft jazz rock guitar record. I mean, it's it's the most. I I, I don't even know how you would find anybody would find that you know problematic or you know devilish or something this is why i can't understand how these rules are applied we we couldn't figure it out either i mean it was pretty much a uh, gamble <laughs> you would just place your bed and maybe it would uh, you would get permission maybe you wouldn't uh, there's no sets uh, logical rules that you could follow and figure out if this is going to get permission or not there were there were hundreds of concerts that got canceled the night before they were scheduled to go live. And there's uh, just no way of predicting who is going to stop you from uh, going on stage. You know, I, I said that I didn't want to focus too much on your personal story, but um, the fact that you were on stage at that historic Gugush show playing guitar, uh, uh, her first time playing in 21 years, um, that had to be a visceral experience, not just for you, not just for her, uh, not just even for the people who attended, but for Persian music. It it represented something. Um, can you talk about that night? Yeah, that was probably one of the most memorable nights of my life. This was in in uh, two thousand July two thousand. And this was uh, 10 days before the show, and I got this call from my uh, good friend, Bobak Yahipur, who's a fantastic bass player in Iran, and uh, Bobak Amini. And they uh, called me and said, we're, we're in Toronto, we're going to play with Gugush on her comeback tour, come and join us. And just, you know, out of the blue, I, had, I was uh, going to college, I was working, so I dropped everything, and I said, okay, well, this is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, I need to be there. And uh, July 29, 2000, there was uh, about 12,000 people there and uh, at Toronto's Air Canada Centre. And uh, it was just an amazing night because a few nights, a few days before that, Ahmad Shamlu had passed away. And uh, when Gugush came on stage, the first thing that she said was that uh, let's have a moment of silence for the passing of uh, the father of Iranian intellectuals, Ahmad Shamlu. And uh, at that point where you're standing on stage with Gugush and there's 12,000 people in the room and everybody goes dead silent for a minute. And it was just an amazing experience for me that at that point you don't um, you don't feel that anybody has like a political or a religious affiliation. You just feel an Iranian community coming together through music and healing as a uh, group therapy experience with the music that has survived so many generations. And it's all because of an amazing artist like Gugush. 
That's quite a it's quite a moment that you got to be there for and and perform as part of. It feels like a certainly a watershed in terms of um, uh, the rebirth of Persian music uh, this time outside of Iran, and through the two thousands, the early two thousands and mid uh, that, that first decade of the two thousands. Uh, there does seem to be a lot of interesting uh, music being developed both in Iran and outside, uh, including some bands you played. And tell me what you wanted to do with Bamahang Productions. With Bamahang, um, so I when I when I toured with the, the Gugush band, uh, we played fourteen concerts in in Canada and the US and then I decided I need to go back to college and finish my studies because I, I've had that experience I mean they continued and had a worldwide tour after that but I uh, you I left it you left the Gugush tour I left the Gugush tour <laughs> how dare you <laughs> I know <laughs> Well, I, I learned a lot during those uh, few months that I was on tour with them. And I learned that, uh, you know, the Persian music industry is not a safe place. Uh, there's no guarantee that you're going to get uh, a paycheck at the end of the month or you're going to get uh, what you deserve. So uh, I went back to something safer like, um, you know, computers uh, where I could get a uh, regular paycheck at the end of the month but I, I used my uh, my knowledge and my passion to develop this um, independent label called Baumohang Productions and at that point CD Baby had just started and this was one of the very first websites that you could submit your music to and also print on-demand CDs and also create uh, digital forms of this and distribute it on digital platforms. And at that point, iTunes didn't even exist. Spotify didn't exist at all. It was just uh, one or two, like, I think it was Amazon Music that was just starting to create the digital uh, music market. But this gave um, independent artists a complete autonomy and independence from big record label contracts. So you could create and develop and distribute your work the way that you wanted to on your terms. And so I used this channel to get um, underground music from Iran that did not have airshot permission for recording and publishing. And then I started distributing this through CD Baby online on the internet. And that was just a very, very, uh, rewarding experience for me and uh, I think a lot of these Iranian artists got exposure through this channel why didn't you continue that was it because it's just too hard to make a go of it or did did you not want to um, it takes a, it's a full-time job it, uh, and I was pretty much by myself at that point it was just me spending hours and hours and days just doing this and, and, and I had had a you know uh, a life and a marriage and a, um, you know career and I needed to balance all of these together and it was just taking too much time out of this and there was no profit margin on it to make it financially uh, you know feasible wow. it was just just the passion of mine that I was uh, following but when I when it started taking 
too much time off of my um, day job, then I realized, okay, well, maybe I, I started something and other people can continue it. And I'm happy to see that a lot of uh, similar models are now being continued and thriving. And uh, I'm very happy to see that. Well, yes and no. Let me segue into today and the nature of the Persian music industry and market today uh, in as much as we can do this with any uh, authority in just a few minutes. But to get your thoughts on this. I mean, one wants to think that things have gotten a lot better and that we're at a, uh, a new moment. Uh, and there's certainly more diversity to Iranian music these days from, you know, hip hop to alternative rock to folk. Some of the groups that, and artists, uh, as we started off when we were talking to uh, folks we've had on this program in the last year. But really, the market feels fragmented. Uh, it's clearly dysfunctional still. Much of the music feels, I, I dare say, uninspired or derivative. Uh, what accounts for this in your view? Well, um, like you said, there is there is a uh, fragmented um, music industry. There's no coherent infrastructure for reporting or uh creating music there's a there's a there's a music industry inside of iran then there's the one outside of iran and nobody knows how to track the best-selling music and there's no uh i would say democratization of data everybody's just creating their own playlists and uh that's that i think is one of the most important issues that we have so even if good music is being created there's no way to track it and get it uh, you know give exposure to it how would how most, would tracking it help well i guess um so if if we're looking at spotify as one of the major platforms sure. that uh, people are using you can go to uh spotifycharts.com and Look up regional reports for the top streaming charts by any country, except Iran, because Iran is not even on that drop-down list of options. Right. So Spotify doesn't even recognize Iran as a as a market. As a, as a, it, it just doesn't exist in terms of Spotify. And the reason, one of the reasons, I would say, is that a lot of uh, users in Iran connect to the internet and to Spotify through uh, VPN connections. Yes which uh, masks their IP address inside of Iran. So Spotify doesn't recognize this user is logging in through Iran. But once you have a sort of, uh, you know that there's a market out there, then you try to describe it and go more granular and figure out why there's uh, this amount of listening listeners from that sp specific market. Iranian music is just categorized as world music. There is nothing else that describes it when you want to right. submit. Right. There's no recognizable genre for Persian music. Yes. E even one called Persian music. There isn't, right? There is nothing like that. There's either, even if you look at all the Grammy nominations that we've had from Iranian artists, they have either been world music or new age. There's nothing for Persian music. Once, I think one of the um, important steps in getting recognition and representation and being able to discover good Persian music is trying to establish an identity for Persian music. 
And we don't have that in place anywhere at all. Yeah, I did a little uh, experiment myself. I went on Spotify, I went on iTunes, and I, I looked up, I tried to, you know, use the search mechanism there to see what I could find in terms of aggregating Iranian musicians or Persian artists or Persian music. Uh, the best I could get is there There are lists of the top Persian hits, quote unquote, uh, that you can find, say, on Spotify. But they're all distinctly in that in a certain kind of pop sound <laughs> they're all of one genre really there there's nothing that aggregates um any other kind of sound i mean any other kind of uh persian artist that is uh, uh, except for those that i guess are getting a lot of spins on persian pop radio somewhere is that would that be where those artists are found pop radio i guess you mean internet uh, sites yeah yeah into Persian pop radio uh, streaming and things like that yeah probably but even those um, those sites they don't categorize them as Persian music they just call them like um, rap or hip-hop and there's there's no distinctive Persian label and uh, we, we actually had um, a chat on uh, Clubhouse about the Turkish rock scene and we were discussing why Turkish rock sounds so good and has that Turkish identity in it. And it's just getting better and better all the time. And uh, it goes way back into the 60s where they started this experimentation with folk music and Turkish rock and everything. But that's a really good model that we could follow for uh, Persian music. I and mean, Turkish pop music and rock music is just phenomenal in my opinion it just sounds so fresh and up-to-date and it still maintains their own turkish uh identity and they have their own uh categories for them they have turkish rock turkish rock is well known there's anatolian rock there's uh arabesque there's all these other ways that you can describe yes. turkish music to yes. others we do not have that established yet but they also have the advantage of having a country, the source country, united with the the diaspora, right? I mean that uh, the again, I mean the dysfunction, the dysfunction uh, exists when when someone like uh, Erfan or Hamed Nikpay or you know anybody who's who's doing stuff that is outside of that uh, particular pop sound, or even some of those pop artists, of course. Uh, can't even go and tour or play or earn royalties from the main country where they have fans. That's true. Yes, that is true. We d we can't uh, have financial transactions from Iran over the internet. There's uh, all sorts of uh, international restrictions. Yeah, so the dysfunctionality stems from a lot of different issues that other countries do not have. That's, and something that we've is. talked about for a fair bit on this program as well, copyright, publishing, royalties. I mean, when these things are, when platforms out there don't feel like they need to pay for the music, and in fact, some big platforms ask the artists to pay for them to play the music, you know, that that is is not going to be able to foster the, the conditions where uh, artists can be making a living at this and um, become an aspiration for younger folks who want to get into it, right? Exactly, exactly. And this is one of the issues I had with, uh, we talked about uh, Caltex uh, a while ago. Um, what they did was that they would give the uh, artist a lump sum of money 
and uh, just purchase the entire rights to the music without any copyright contracts or royalties and Caltex would own the entire music publishing rights and the rights to the music videos so that's like several sources of income that an artist uh, is denied of because they just got a lump sum of money up front and Caltex owned these uh, copyrights for I don't know how many years and probably they, st they still do own a lot of them and uh, you know uh, Iranian artists a lot of them don't know their rights they don't know they can join artist unions they don't know they can register their songs join ASCAP um, we need I think more entertainment lawyers who would sit down and educate Iranian artists. But do you know about. something that I've learned just recently, yeah. and it blew me away as somebody who's been a, a manager and uh, for artists in the past. There are well-known Iranian artists, like those, the people, kind of people and bands and artists that we would consider the top tier that, you know, most Iranians around the world would recognize that have no manager, that have no agent, in other words, there's no structure of management and label representation for a, a lot of artists in Persian music today. I don't even know how that happens. You know, you wouldn't, you you couldn't imagine that in, in the West. You know, it would be very avant-garde for a popular artist to not have any a team around them, and yet that doesn't exist in Persian music. Yep, that's that's another uh, point of d dysfunctionality in this industry that there's no uh, trust, there's no uh, reliable label representation and uh, artist management. The majority of successful Iranian artists that I know of, they are managed by either their siblings or their spouses. And that seems to be a winning model because of the the trust that they can establish. Is that them. what it's about? Trust? I think so. It's, uh, it, I mean, it's just bad business, right? It's weird. It's, it's, it's honestly weird. It's that, that there isn't, uh, you know, that there isn't more of a priority put on a, 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 an infrastructure being developed. I mean, this is why artists are kind of flailing and at the whims of, you know, somebody's wedding invite or, or uh, some gig that they hope to get at a festival or something because, you know, good artists in the West have representation. I mean, that's just kind of the way it works. Yeah, yeah. Well, a good uh, uh, artist manager would create multiple streams of income for the artist. Right. But when you have a really bad infrastructure like we have in the uh, Persian music industry, you, you cannot really do any long-term planning. So you're just looking for, uh, you know, how to book the next gig or the next concert, get that lump sum of money up front before, you know, somebody goes bankrupt and they can't pay you. So it's just, uh, it's just short-term and uh, short-term profit as soon as possible. Yeah. And go on to the next album it's a bit heartbreaking really because even sort of indie uh you know folk or rocker artists in in north america who have any traction at all will already have an agent will have uh management will have a label that's 
that 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 if nothing else is taking care of the business end entirely so that the artist can can focus on being an artist as well right instead of exactly. trying to negotiate with somebody who's going to be their promoter at some uh, dodgy hall in uh, Richmond Hill and and you know uh, and the artist is d- doing the negotiation themselves and going well can I get it paid a little bit more I mean this is it's it's so um, uh, difficult for me to, to to get my head around how this all happened, although I see I'm understanding it through these kind of conversations that we're having. Yeah, yeah, it is like you said. It's really heartbreaking that uh, artists have 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 to spend so much time dealing with uh, the business side of stuff while they should be focusing on their songwriting and their uh, self expression instead of negotiating with numbers and sometimes not getting paid at all yeah, or even interacting with the fans building the following doing you know i mean all of that stuff rather than uh, yeah. negotiating how how um significant is radio javon and the the fact that it is if not the only game in town the big game in town i mean how how big a deal is that in terms of shaping what becomes successful and not in persian music today um, Radio Javon, I, I know some of the founders and I've worked with them. They are really good at what they do. They they are very highly technical. They uh, I think they were the first um, Iranian radio that uh, created a mobile app and they started streaming their libraries uh, on uh, mobile applications with really good quality. And now they've emerged as like a, an entire production company where they put on uh, concerts and do artist promotion and stuff. Um, they're really they're, the quality is really good what they're doing. But um, I would like to see some more uh, competition in the market and give uh, artists more choices to choose from, because right now I think they are just they have a monopoly on the Persian music market. And uh, you need to have uh, a more level playing ground. And, uh, um, you know, um, yeah, I think um, I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. Why are you trying to choose your words carefully? Well, because because they they are my friends and uh, Mm -hmm. I I like the quality of their work. Okay. But I also... I also like. I mean, this is another thing about being in the Persian community. We're not. We're not allowed to be critical of anything. We're not allowed to. I mean, c- criticism can be constructive, right? We can. Right. We can love and appreciate Radio Javan and and also come up with some ideas that you know. <laughs> oh, here's something that could help. I, I don't know. I mean, it feels very. Everybody's always walking on eggshells with this stuff because our community gets very sensitive. And and um, but how do we make this better? Yeah. Um, my focus has been on trying to get uh, data accessible to artists. I mean, we live in the information age or whatever we want to call it, and we are dealing with huge sets of data every day, but it seems that this data is not accessible to artists. They do not know where their music is being uh, streamed to and who's buying their music. And, uh, you know, how it's being utilized. Uh, I would like to see Which that means happen. they're not getting paid. Exactly. Right. Yes. Yeah. So once you have the democratization of data, then you have the evidence 
to uh, back up your claims and say, well, okay, if I'm I'm the best-selling artist with uh, this many millions of streams, where's my paycheck? Babak, where are you, uh, before I let you go, this has been really interesting, so interesting to me. Uh, where are you at in terms of your feelings about where Persian music is today? I mean, as the guy who was playing uh, uh, hard rock and teaching rock guitar in Tehran and underground in the 1990s to the guy who uh, helped build a kiosk and was playing on those those tours and 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 uh, developing uh, uh, the the production company you developed uh, with Bamahang and and to the guy who has been uh, trying to promote and help create the conditions where Persian artists can travel and get visas are you optimistic for the future of Iranian rock and alternative music? I'm actually very optimistic because I've been discovering Persian artists, like uh, 10 new artists every week, good artists. And these are all independent artists. They're just they're young talent. Uh, they're emerging. They have great ideas. And I think the future is really bright. And we just have to spend more time discovering the artists and supporting them in any way we can. And the supporting doesn't mean necessarily just um, financially. I mean, just talking about them, educating each other about the existence of these different genres of music inside and outside of Iran. I think that would be the best way to uh, give them more exposure. And uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we'll have a uh, good and thriving scene and uh, at least in my lifetime just out of curiosity where do you go to find the 10 artists a week that you get so inspired by everywhere there's they're on spotify they're on soundcloud they are uh you know on instagram and uh, i just have a couple of uh, different circle of friends that we share music with each other and um, it's just a great discovery process. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I, I can't wait to do it in person again at some point. I appreciate you joining us from Seattle. I appreciate your, your expertise, your, your wisdom, and uh, thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Jian John. And I just wanted to say thank you for interviewing Leonard Cohen. And uh, I love that interview. I've watched it several times. Thank you so much for saying that, too. Uh, talk soon. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Bye. There he is. Music nerd, music industry veteran, rock guitarist, and producer, Babak Chi. Follow him on Clubhouse. Uh, to hear more of his commentary, it's always excellent. Next week on this series, we're going to hear a perspective from inside Iran in recent years with music critic and writer Amir Bahari. Stay tuned for that. Babak Khiafchi, join us from Seattle, Washington today. بیساز که یارم به سلامت بازایت و برهانتم از بند ملامت راه آن یار سفر کرده بیارید تا چشم جهان بین کنمش جای اقامت که از چشتم راه ببستن آن خال و خط و زلفور و خوارز اقامت که در دست 
تو هم مرهمتی کن فردا کشم خاک که زود عشقان دامت درویش و کنگاله زشم شیره Yes, yes. A little taste of the song Darvish. That's Oha, right? Yes. The Van Oha. I, yeah, I had a sense you were going to play that. I know you really <laughs> like that. Because you you played it for me once yes, before. Yes, yes, yes. You love that. I've yeah. never heard that. I've Isn't that cool? I love it. You know what's cool about that? So what's that from uh, 19, like 20 years ago? Like, yeah, kind mm-hmm. of, yeah. yeah. Ni- 1999. 1999. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and they're in Iran, right? Or they yeah. were in Tehran oh, when in they met. Tehran, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so they're, they're, it amazes me. I mean, this is speaking of dysfunction and still great art being made. Mm-hmm. They They create that music that can't get played on the radio in Iran. They can't perform it live, yeah. but yeah. it's so it's uh, it's awesome. I mean, I it sounds it's up there with any other kind of yeah. power rock pop of the early two thousands. It's got that sound. How you know? would I find music like this? Like, there's no way for me to come across this unless someone like Shia walks into my life and says, "Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a tall that. drink of water." <laughs> yeah, Shia walks sure into is. your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, I mean, that's the that's the thing. You know, we don't have a like Persian category on Spotify that yeah. you can go like Persian rock and that's I thought hard. that was a really important point that Bob Eck was making yes mm. that, that there is you know you can't even uh, even even the tools that do exist like mm. Spotify it's unclear you know you, you just sort of go to a world music or something like that to yeah. find in terms of the genre like there are a few as I mentioned Persian music lists of you know the yeah. Persian hits of today or yeah. something like that but but there's no genre no. related and and so i mean it it makes it it all perpetuates right yeah. it's harder mm-hmm. to discover stuff what did, yeah. what did you think of that uh, it was eye opening I, I mean listen this isn't my world I'm not into music like you guys mm-hmm. you guys are inside mm-hmm. the industry or you used to be at least um, so it was very interesting for me in that sense that it's just I never like thought of things the way that he was talking about and I, I had no idea that there was no Persian genre on Spotify that, mm-hmm. that makes me sad mm-hmm. And by the way, I was at that Gugush concert. You were? My mother, uh, well, my parents. In the year 2000? Yeah, we were in Toronto at that time, um, you know, just uh, over the holidays, was it? Or was it summertime? Anyway, they dragged me to that concert. They They dragged you? It was very emotional, right? Was it very emotional? Yeah, it was. Well, to be honest, I was like, what? Like 11 years old Mm. at the time, so Uh I didn't... I was trying to be a white kid. Right, I didn't right, care right, for right, the right, Persian right. culture. So Did your parents cry? Oh yeah. Oh, I think yeah. that actually made me realize, wow, this is really special. You know, it's oh, yeah. and the Shamlu thing. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, eleven years old, you wouldn't have Yeah, I don't I, give a shit at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but I you know, I appreciate it now. Do you feel like Bob Eck was uh I I mean he's so He's he's a great ambassador in a way talking about this mm. stuff because he's he's diplomatic. But I, do you feel like he was pulling punches a little bit? Like he was not saying everything he could say. I mean, certainly when we were talking about Radio Javon, yeah, yeah Radio mm. Javon, some of the stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's hard to tell because Bobak, even if he wants to like force him, even if he wants to like fight, swear with, at you, yeah. yeah. He tries to do in a way that you. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he. De- I think he delivered. What he, he made his point. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, what other thing that I want to say about the, the song that we played, Darvish, 
you know and it's related to the one of topics that we discussed I mean you discussed with the Babak about that you don't know the rules of Ershad that who can <sighs> get license who cannot like the Oham yeah. their whole album was the poems by Hafez you know the mm-hmm. Hafez everybody knows Hafez but there is no chance that that they could get a license because it was a rock music. That's interesting though, because one of the things that Bobak says that said that was illuminating for me was that he said it usually really is about the lyrics. That he said if you can get the lyrics through, then you can kind of play whatever music you want, which I thought was very so curious. It, yes, so. but uh, yes, I said that because the, even that you, you don't know. Right, like right. like it happened to me that I I brought several uh, lyrics to Ershad. Mm-hmm. I remember the one that ha- actually it was for Hafez. They draw a red line mm-hmm. on it that you cannot sing mm-hmm. this, and mm-hmm. we, yeah, you never know that. But you know, as a, as somebody who's been a songwriter, you know, throughout the, my my life, uh, and I sit, think about those times when I sat down and wrote songs at you know three in the morning, the ones that did well for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to have to calculate into that, you know, when I ask them the question about, yeah. do you do you have to think about when you're creating? Yes. I mean, the last thing you want to do to, for any artist is say, by the way, when you're painting that picture, think about a government regulation, <laughs> right? Or whatever it is. So in the moment of creating, or do you need to think about Ershad? And I expected him to kind of say, well, you know, that's not what you do. Later on, you think about And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, that's like, it, while we're writing, we're thinking about that. And yeah. is this going to make it through the sensor? And is it not? Yeah. And that's no way to develop a creative industry. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, instead of like practicing our instruments, we had to find a loophole to how to ditch Ershad to get a license. Yeah. And, yeah. and yes. you, when you guys, Dang Show got, you're not banned or something, but you weren't able to play, was that because the, the, the Ershad said that you're you're crossing the line or something? Or? Yes. I mean, uh, let me say something right now. Because of Bobak, Dang Show is Dang Show. I have to mention this, you uh-huh. know. What do you mean? So he released our first album. He was kind of our first promoter, and oh. he kind of um, discovered you. Discovered us, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, no wonder you said all those nice things about him. <laughs> <laughs> so um, actually, one of the reason that we cannot, we we were banned of performing in Iran was that like Bobak released our first album because he was in the United States, and mm-hmm. so. Uh, Wait a minute, he discovered you, but then he created the the, the, the issue where you couldn't get it. <laughs> yeah, he discovered us, and we didn't know if we released our first album outside of Iran, then we cannot perform inside Iran. So You mean just releasing the record outside of Iran was an, was an issue? One of the biggest issues, yeah. <sighs> Yeah. I mean, I will continue to ask that question of anybody that comes on the show. I mean, uh, you know, how, how do you make sense of these rules and regulations? Unfortunately, the answer seems to be you don't. There's no, there's no rhyme or reason to it. But uh, it's, yeah, it's maddening. Kian, how you, you, it's amazing that you can even pay attention with all the, the sun you've had, the, the joy, the. Indeed. You know, you know, uh, uh, whenever the life gets difficult, I look over at Keon and realize how things could be different. You know? I almost feel guilty for it sometimes. You just came back from Antigua. By the way, you've got a 
a cough or something. I feel like I not only have you had your vacation, now you've got COVID and you're giving it to not. me. I do not. I had a PCR test as soon as I arrived at but the you, airport. But since then, Negative. you got it. I can feel the Negative. molecules. I've been are home com- all weekend. There's no uh, way. I just feel a little bit of, you know, that like... You know, when you're over listen is whatever happened to having a regular little bit of a not cold allowed. you know Colds it's are not, not allowed, allowed anymore, right? no. it's omicron that's what that is <laughs> yeah, that's all there is out there but no i'm fine i promise you man you got out you got out the right time oh my they might God. be banning the, the flights again i can't now believe or this i cannot uh, believe that we're back yeah <laughs> just please yes. if they take away the gym from me i think the, That'll be. The I don't final think that's it's going to go into lockdown. They closed yet. it down in Montreal or in, in Quebec. All the gyms, gyms oh, really? and oh, salons. Really? Yeah. Oh. So, anyway, sorry to ruin own, everybody's mood. No, no, no. Our very own Captain Reza. We didn't want to talk about it too much last week because we were all actually afraid yeah. that we actually had the COVID. But now we realize we didn't get it from him. Of course, now we might get it from you. No way. But uh, <laughs> we uh, no. But there was a little scare because. Uh, Captain Reza, the week before, you know, he'd been running around in here like, you yeah. know, like nobody's business. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, uh, yeah. then all of a sudden he's like, hey, I can't speak. And my throat, yeah. He lost his voice? Well, it, this is weird, you know. Captain Reza, uh, the COVID seems to manifest itself differently in different people. Hmm. So... Um, so, so his girlfriend yeah. had uh, all of the traditional symptoms, right? Mm. Um, which is like high temperature, cough, mm-hmm. uh, shortness of breath, no, unable to taste anything, no sense of taste. Yeah. Uh, Captain Reza, um, he uh, he started making good movies, which is weird. <laughs> After all the years of making shit, to, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, Captain Reza uh, was vomiting. He oh. was throwing up like uh, constantly, and it, it's uh, to him. It's been it's almost like he's got like stomach flu or something, oh, right? Shit. Yeah. So uh, um, and on the weekend, he was telling me, uh, "I don't understand. My throat is. I can't talk." And I said, "Well, that's actually from vomiting. If you vomit so many times, oh, it, it's yeah. it's traumatic for the throat. So mm. you know, you." I just your... remembered. So I went scuba oh, diving boy. in Antigua, yeah. and let me tell you, you remember if, you anyone, have COVID. Anyone who scuba dives, uh-huh. Antigua is not the place to do it. Oh. The waves are fucking crazy. Over was Antigua there. amazing? It was amazing, but the scuba diving, I mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart, and I'm the faint of heart. Because there so were the, the point of that, no, it was the goddamn the waves. waves. So oh. I got seasick constantly, oh. and I kept, I would get, I would, you know, throw up, and then I would go down again. And, All right, you ready to do this? I'm like, okay, because oh, I mean that quickly, like you'd go scuba diving, you come out and you yeah, throw so up, see, and then you go back in. <laughs> so I d- I paid, I paid for an advance. Good way to lose weight. <laughs> well, Maybe I should start to well, scuba diving. The thing is, I paid for the advanced scuba diving, and I was like, I'll be damned if I don't finish right. this damn I want course. My so scuba I had diving. to. Yeah. So th- that made me think maybe that's why my throat's a little off. So mm-hmm. I don't have COVID, okay? That's the point of this. Makes it worse. No, because of that. Every time I, I have a, like last night or something, I felt like a tickle in my throat. And then I was rethinking all the people I've, you know, I went into this Starbucks, I did this. Uh, I walked by Shia, you know, like, who gave this to me? And I'm, yeah, I don't actually think we should close down everything. I'm not one of those, but uh, uh, in fact, I'm I'm expecting to travel to Dubai right. and, and uh, Istanbul in like a couple of weeks. So I'm hoping that just don't go. Close things don't down. listen. I just to what go they and say. don't just come back. Go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. go where everything's just open. Yeah. People have COVID and they're. Yeah. Yeah. 
all right. So next week we'll continue this uh, the plight of Persian music part two, and then in the future we're going to do more parts of this as well. In the meantime, uh, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Right. Are you ready? It's Monday. We hadn't done this for a couple of weeks because Keon was in the sun. It's Letters of the Week. Yeah. No one can do it like Reza. No. We need the captain. Dear Reza. Uh, last week, episode 159, we had renowned Iranian-American psychic, hypnotherapist, and holistic healer, Fia Johansson on the show, otherwise known as the Persian medium. Oh, I know. I, I knew when you were saying we got a lot of letters. Oh, yeah. It's about Fia <laughs> yeah, because yeah. some people loved her. Some people loved her. Loved some her people hated her. Didn't, didn't like Absolutely the, yeah, hated yeah. her. I so, mean, yeah. I guess, I, I don't know if we'd say even just her or any... Any psychic medium, or something that's right. some people would like people I mean, don't believe in it or exactly i mean it depends on what you believe like right you know anyway uh sadaf dargahi wrote i like this episode besides her superpower she sounds like a very smart and busy woman hope she can pass some of her energy here so i can do one fourth of what she usually does in her life with three kids and so much more yeah, there was no, there's no question she's industrious. <laughs> That's it's amazing right. the amount of things she does. It's like, uh, good for her. Yeah. Uh, then we have Mo Safalbach, who takes a different stance. I did not know you interview crazy people as well. <laughs> All right. And then... Clearly not. hasn't heard the interviews with Reza. <laughs> yeah. With Savvy Rohan. <laughs> uh, well, uh, Khan wrote was so waiting for you to ask her the million dollar question. When will the pandemic end, lol? That's right, using Why her superpowers, you? yeah, yeah. Uh, Nunush wrote saying, thank you, Jian John. This was one of the best episodes ever. All right, uh, Fia Johansson fan. All right, Bob the PM wrote, I always got something at the end of every Rook interview. This one didn't give me anything, adding no value. I don't believe even one word out of her thousands of words. With all respect to you, Jian John. All right, I thank you for the respect. Listen, you did, you're welcome to not love all of the guests that That's come right. on the show. There's a variety of guests. Some of them are not gonna be everybody's uh, cup of tea, as she Nasiri would say. That is true. Um, and then we have Amir Reza Shams, who wrote a nice, uh, a hefty letter. Dear Rook team, hope you're all doing okay. Happy New Year and Merry Christmas to all of you. Mm. I just listened to the episode with Fia Johansson, and I must say, this was the funniest episode of Rook that I've heard. And in brackets, he has coming from a show that has had actual comedians. It says a lot. <laughs> and I've listened to all the episodes of this great podcast. I've recommended this show to all my friends, but this episode, as much as I tried not to be biased, was a punch to my face. Oh. People like Miss Johansson are the type of individuals who make social media and the world as a whole unbearable, spreading false information and conspiracy theories left and right. I don't usually send letters to your podcast as I don't see any value that I can bring to your show, but I cannot sit idly by and see my favorite show becoming a place for people with fake followers and cheap mindsets. Love you all, and I'm looking forward to more episodes with added value on the Iranian diaspora. Not interviews with charlatans that shatter the image of our already battered heritage and culture for their own business. 
Oof. Oof. All right. Not a... Not a fan. Of, <laughs> no, uh, of, no. Uh, He's a fan uh, of the show, Fia but uh, not a fan of the Fia. But, you know, I'll say this again. I mean, we had uh, the Persian medium, Fia Johansson, on, on Monday. On Thursday, we had Dr. Shah Bakhash mm. on Reza Shah. Uh, on the weekend, we had uh, Fiers Nadiri. The week before, we had um, uh, Mary Gisa Carr. So, I mean, you know, it is a variety, and uh, I would hope that our... Um, listeners would would appreciate that and and you know uh, just two letters ago this person that was one of my favorite Lots best episodes ever right? right so it's very interesting to there's hear this something feedback. for everybody it's a balanced show well, you see. can't you're yeah, not gonna love right. it all obviously but Fred Paravonisher does he says Dr. Johansson is one of the most generous gracious and nicest people I have come to know I'm so happy you inter- interviewed her all right yeah. thank cool. you Fred uh, Bahar, uh, last name HGH, says, um, Molas, Ayatollahs, and the Basijis will be pleased to see this episode. <laughs> People like this lady definitely endorse the superstition they have been feeding our community for years wow. that ensured their survival. All right. Oof. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right, let's move on to another episode. Uh, episode 159, we had an interview. 158, my apologies. We had an interview with Iranian-Canadian teenage genius Erfan Nurai, who's an award-winning quantum physics inventor. Yes. Yes, that's quite the opposite of the Persian medium. So, balance. Um, we have Nazila Rafizadeh, who wrote, Thanks, Gian and Rook team for this great interview. Just remember his name. He will be a famous person in the future. It's the truth that his parents have a major role, major and important role in his success. Yeah, I agree with that. It's true. Yeah. Samira Talibi wrote, I'm proud of Erfan. On the other hand, I'm sad that my country is losing these talents. Yes. It's true. Parpar Adab wrote, Erfan is a national treasure. Mm. That he is. And then of which nation, though? Ah, that's yeah. a good national question. National treasure of Canada or of Iran? Mm. Oh, humanity. Humanity, that's yeah. beautiful, Shaya. My God. <laughs> Anahita Irani wrote uh, quite the letter. She wrote, Thank you and very well done as always, Rook Team. I've been listening to your amazing show for quite some time now, and I have to admit that your show literally saved me from getting depressed during the pandemic. Oh, I love that. That's nice. I've been meaning to write to you, write a thank you letter for a long time now. But as I'm a mother of two little ones, and English being my second language, I couldn't manage to do so. Since I didn't want to just write any thank you letter, I wanted to write a thank you letter that does justice for your amazing show and the great content you provide and do so with minimal writing errors. Also, to answer the question that Jian had about why Iran's government doesn't appreciate geniuses like Erfan, since the dictatorship of the Mullah started, Khomeini himself said that the problems rise from the universities and well-educated people. This regime is all for crushing people's hopes and dreams, and it's not in their agenda to support and flourish young people like Erfan, as this would be a great threat to their dictatorship. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, letter, Annie. Thank you for writing in. I much appreciate By the uh, way, I got some negative... Uh, feedback about Airfon. Oh, the, the no g- way. D- boy genius. Airfon? Yeah, who yeah, yeah. say something? This ma- guy, this musician guy I know who will remain unnamed, but <laughs> he's not a Faramir Aslani fan either. Okay. The guy wrote and was like, oh, that guy's a fake. I'm what? like, he's a kid. <laughs> he's, he's a, a child. 19 years old. Yeah. 
who cares? He invented some things. I mean, it was like. <laughs> You're, are you serious? I'm t- 100% oh, wow. serious, yeah. Well, there you go. Not everybody's cup of tea. Well. Uh, oh, we have a general letter from Ehsan Hudkani. He wrote, Hi, dear Rook team. This picture is from the time... Uh, by the way, he sent a picture of uh, like uh, with a sign saying, Listening to Rook from... Mm-hmm. I'll go mm-hmm. on. This picture is from the time I was listening to Rook from Mashhad, Iran. Ah. And now I'm listening from Ottawa, Canada. Oh! He moved. Welcome, welcome, welcome. to Canada. Yes. A big shout out to the fantastic Rook team. Dear Jian, Shaya John, Ahai Reza, Kian Jun, Super Parisa, and all of you guys. Ahai Reza? Jeez. <laughs> Giving him a title. Yeah, yeah. Wrong title. He's a captain, not an Allah. <laughs> Could you? <laughs> That's great. Welcome, uh, Esam. Welcome to Canada. That's nice to, nice to have you here. Well, then after all of that, it's time for the letter of the week. All right. So this username simply goes by one, number one, like there's no name, but whoever it is, we thank you for your letter, says, bravo, the full, oh, by the way, this is the episode of Airfon. Airfon. Yeah. Yeah. He says, bravo. Airfon, Airfon, Airfon Nurai. That's right. That's right. Not Airfon the rapper or Airfon the basketball player. Not to be confused. (laughs) Although we love them as well. He says, number one says, bravo, the full package, all the works. He's got it all. This guy is really amazing. And I mean that not just in terms of his academic ingenuity, but also when it comes to his overall intellect. He has a deep understanding of the whole entire education process and is the living proof that unilateral policies and imposing limits on real talented people out there using a standardized testing system poisons that pool of talent. He really gets it. Do the test results really tell you what field you deserve to be in? Does doing poorly mean you are not going to be a good doctor, for instance? Yet some of these poor performers move abroad and breeze through the education system and become darn good professionals. Which, come to think of it, could be one reason why brainiacs like this young man at this stage in his academic life and others on much more advanced levels prefer to get the heck out of the country in order to seek and actually receive support from their ideas. One more thing. I feel everything that Keon feels on the inside and Captain Reza on the outside, in brackets he has lol, pretty much after each show. But it's all good. And even though I go through many boxes of tissues and bags of sunflower seeds to calm me down, I'm going to continue listening. Learning invaluable lessons here. Wasn't that lovely? That was a great Why do you think that's a a male? Why do I think that's a male? Yeah, yeah. A male? Yeah, he said. He oh, said. He said. I, that's you said a good he. question. I don't know. I just read it as a guy for mm. some reason. Is it that? I don't know. I understand. I feel everything that Keon feels on the inside. Oh, it could be. Fe- I don't and know. Captain Rez on the outside, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess maybe. Why, why doesn't this person feel anything that you and I are, Shia, <laughs> on the inside or outside? It's well, confusing. What is it? That part confused me a little. So how could you feel what Captain Reza feels on the outside? <laughs> and what you feel on the inside. I don't, I don't know. And what is Captain Reza feeling on the outside? Like, I'm assuming well, my soul and Captain Reza. Well, I get that Reza's part. You're like, inside. But, yeah, I mean, but, uh, <laughs> Captain Reza feels on the outside. The, the wind on his face? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the chafing uh, of his beard? <laughs> How to turn a, a, a lovely letter into a source of ridicule. Sorry, uh, number one, or I, or however you're... First of all, uh, by all means, at some point, you can tell us your name. There's nothing wrong uh, with that. If you wish, uh, we'd love to hear who you are and where you're writing from. But should you wish to remain anonymous or with your username, thank you for your letter of the week. 
Uh, it's very much appreciated. But maybe you could send a supplemental letter explaining what it is you feel on the inside <laughs> that Keon feels and Captain Reza feels on the outside pretty much after every show. <laughs> Needs box of tissues and sunflower seeds to get through it. So. I feel what Savi Roham feels in his hands <laughs> and Super Parisa in her ears. I feel what Shia feels in his groin area and what Xi'an feels in the nape of his neck. <laughs> I feel producer Susan's brain and parts of the artist's feet. Please explain yourself, number one. <laughs> number one, first of all. <laughs> well, that's his name. That's all we know. <laughs> it's amazing that he got the number one. Yeah. I think other people would it's thought a, It's that. on or YouTube. She. You, yeah, he they, or she. They, maybe it's they. Maybe. Know, Who know. knows these days? All right. Thank you very much to Fabulous Keon. Thank you, Groovy Shia. Thank you to everybody out there. Uh, we'll continue our series, The Plight of Persian Music, next week. Uh, this Thursday, we continue uh, the contemporary history of Iran, uh, the second part on Reza Shah with Dr. Shal Bakhash. This time, the fall, fall of Reza Shah mm. coming this Thursday. And later this week, it's Christmas. Oh, yeah, it's coming up. This Christmas. That's a good one. That's full time for Rook for today. <laughs> Thank you very much, everybody. Listen, if you want to check out more episodes of Rook, our Rook videos, funny moments, outtakes, the list of guests, the list of topics, rookmedia.com is the place to go. Rookmedia.com. That's where you can also go to become a patron or sponsor of our program. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together savvy roham talented anahita producer susan ponson the artist the fabulous keon super parisa ahai mehdad captain reza and groovy shaya thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content please subscribe on any or all of our platforms if you've not done so already find me on instagram at giango meshi happy christmas to you all and mizun bashi